This is a special report from Minnesota Native News brought to you by Native Voice One. I'm Marie Rock. We often hear stories of discrimination and racial tension when a wave of new immigrants moves into a predominantly white town. But this kind of tension also exists in towns where white people long ago settled on American Indian land. Some people think that racism is a personally bad attitude. It's not. What it is is uh, pervasive and it's institutionalized and it's part of every aspect of American life. And Native people are on the receiving end of that inequity more than any other group. Over the next hour, we go to Bemidji, Minnesota. For the past 50 years, Natives and their non-Native allies there have succeeded in exposing that racism and moving toward greater racial equality and justice. This is Rocking the Boat, the story of changing race relations in Bemidji, Minnesota. Here's reporter Melissa Townsend. This was, of course, at one time, all Indian land mainly associated with the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. But in the late 1800s, white settlers came for logging and farming. Now, this predominantly white town sits in the middle of three of the largest and most populous Indian reservations in Minnesota. About 15,000 people live here, and about half of them are American Indian. It's a border town, if there ever was one. And racial tensions here have run high. Well, I can tell you this. Lenore Barsness is a citizen of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. She lives in Bemidji, Minnesota. Lenore describes herself to me as a light-complected Native American woman. But I have siblings who are darker-complected. I have a mother who is dark-complected. So all of my life, I had noticed a difference in how we were treated based on which family members were with me. She says back in the 1960s, when she was a young woman, employees would follow them around stores to make sure they weren't stealing anything. Anton Troyer is also from Leech Lake. He's a lean, middle-aged man with a dark braid running down his spine. He says as a young person in middle school in Bemidji, he had to deal with racist taunts from other students. Where there were four kids sitting around a quad table in the shop class, and I was the only native at our table. And uh, the kids started in, Indians are all drunks. Yeah, they're just leeches on the government. Yeah, they're running us dry. And I'd say, no, that's not true. My mom said, and they'd cut me off. Your mom just said that because she's a dumb squat, and they just keep going. Everything is negative about that experience, whether you're angry or humiliated, intimidated, ashamed. Kathy Annette remembers a variety of ways businesses and towns discriminated against Native Americans. Young men, because they had long hair, these were some of our finest traditional dancers who weren't allowed access to jobs without being told, you will cut your hair. It was being in line at a grocery store and seeing people getting checks cashed. But when you came up as a Native, and I experienced this, the manager was called to take a look at this. What healthy emotion comes from an experience like that? There, there is none. Through her work with the Blandin Foundation, Kathy Annette is acquainted with rural towns across the state. And she says now Bemidji is at the forefront of race relations work between natives and non-natives. She says Bemidji is leading the way, which made me wonder, how did that happen? The big changes really began in 1966 with two men, 
Bob Cole, K-O-H-L, and Roger Jordan, who was tribal chairman at Red Lake at the time. Anton Troyer and I are going to tell this story. He was that boy in the Bemidji Middle School, but now he's a respected historian, published author, and a professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University. He wrote a book about the Red Lake Nation. Bob Cole was a radio personality here in Bemidji. Uh, and was also hired as publicity director for the freshly minted Bemidji Area Chamber of Commerce. Cole decided to tour homes of local families who were receiving welfare benefits. And based upon his personal observations, he then gave a series of three radio programs in which he basically went on a racist rant. And I can pull out a few and just read them to you. In fact... Why don't we do it right now? Okay. Oops. While he's searching his computer for quotes from the Bemidji Pioneer newspaper, let me warn you, Bob Cole's comments are seriously disturbing. So Cole um, was at a couple of homes at Red Lake. He described them as indescribably filthy. Uh, the people are so low on the human scale that it is doubtful they will ever climb upward. Their satisfaction level is so low that it corresponds to that of the most primitive of Earth's animals. Perhaps we should never have lowered our sights to this level. Perhaps we should have let nature take her course, let disease and malnutrition disrupt the reproductive process, and weed out those at the very bottom of the heap. Yeah, disturbing. And Anton Troyer is quoting just one section of one broadcast. Oh, there's more. Yeah. Cole did three broadcasts on local radio station KBUN. So in any event, um, that didn't go over too well in Indian country. Uh, to say the least. Uh, Roger Jordan, who was tribal chairman at Red Lake at the time, said enough is enough. Took the issue before the tribal council and they voted to boycott Bemidji. He communicated with other tribal leaders, and pretty soon Leech Lake joined the boycott and eventually White Earth. This was huge. Anton estimates American Indians were 50% of shoppers in Bemidji, and overnight, they were gone. Literally, overnight. Cole's broadcast aired on October 24th, 25th, and 26th. And by October 29th, three days later, all three tribal nations had blacklisted Bemidji. The tribal governments also threatened to withdraw all their money from Bemidji banks to the tune of $2 million. This was 1966. There was an editorial in the Bemidji Pioneer that said the boycott has been so effective and so thorough that over the week, for the first time since Bemidji became a community, Bemidji streets have been practically devoid of Indians. This is a deplorable situation and one that cannot be allowed to continue. Bemidji cannot long withstand the harmful effects of a strict boycott. Who wrote that? That was an editorial in the Bemidji Pioneer. Other people um, defended coal. Um, David Umhauer wrote, I hope that those Indians offended by the broadcast do boycott Bemidji. If they do, it will be a cleaner town. Roger Dane was also writing during this time. His niece, Jody Bolio, read me some of his quotes from the tribal newspaper, the Red Lake Times. These are dated October 28, 1966. We will have to find out who our friends are and act accordingly as to where we spend our money and take our trade. I am sure that any merchant, laundromat, barber shop, bank, auto dealer, and the like, who thinks of us as subhuman, would not want us in their store. We will not force ourselves on anybody. We will go where we are wanted, when it is made known to us that we are wanted. 
And the best proof of that is not only a smile when we come in through the doors and another smile when the cash register jingles, but some actual hard support in putting an end to this type of vilification and name-calling. Jordan wanted Cole to apologize and then be fired, but he also wanted to address the economic discrimination that had been keeping Native Americans back since the beginning of Bemidji. Roger Jordan um, said, well, to really make things better, you need to address economic opportunities, and this isn't something that'll happen overnight. A lot of people have a lot of learning to do. The entire timber boom, their ability to obtain gainful employment in the logging industry, you know, and any of the other businesses that were rapidly growing was really, really diminished. Keeping Indians impoverished and denying them opportunity was how they created opportunity for everybody else. When you skip up to Bob Cole, his statements and the economic conditions in the 1960s, well, of course, everything didn't just repair itself overnight. Bob Cole did apologize. Cole came up to Red Lake, gave an apology to the tribal council. Of course, everyone at Red Lake heard he was coming, so there were over 200 people at the tribal council meeting. After the apology, some say Cole was fired. But according to the Red Lake Times, the radio station and the Chamber of Commerce planned to keep him on. But then Roger Jordan started talking about expanding the boycott, and within a day, Cole had resigned. On November 4th, seven days after Roger Jordan organized the boycott, Bemidji Mayor Howard Mengi met with him to talk about that larger picture. I think the mayor was really trying to find a way to uh, make things better. And so they ended up creating an organization, uh, and they called it the Community Relations Commission. Uh, and this is really the first effort in the Bemidji region to look at some sort of racial reconciliation um, and be intentional about it. There was a big push to train regional business owners and employees on cultural competencies so more Native people would be hired. Joe Lucan was a white man who owned Lucan's Grocery Stores, a small local chain. He set up an affirmative action program and successfully put many new Native employees on a management track. He's passed now, but Anton says while he was alive... I've personally seen him show up at a couple of powwows and be given honor songs, and they call out everybody to come shake his hand. Lucan's commitment notwithstanding, Anton says the momentum from the boycott and the formation of this new coalition lasted for relatively a short time. I think some Native people got disillusioned with a pace of change that was too slow. Uh, and I think some white folk got scared. Such a long, long time before the dawn. It took until about, I think, 2005 when we really coalesced with a group to improve race relations. Rita Albright is the current mayor of Bemidji, but in 2005, she wasn't in government. She was just Rita. So Rita, who is not Native, and a few other volunteers started a new organization called Shared Vision. She says they wanted to take a more proactive approach. In 2009, the group worked with researchers to survey people in the Bemidji area. 
The survey went directly after something most people wanted to avoid, tough questions about race and life in Bemidji. And that was an eye-opener for us. One question asked, do you feel the Bemidji area is a welcoming community to people of all races? There was a disconnect between how Indians viewed, you know, the community and how whites viewed the community. To be specific, 88% of white residents said the Bemidji area is welcoming. And 73% of Native Americans said it was not. Lenore Barsness, that light-complected Native American woman from Leech Lake, she says this documentation of the Native experience was a very big deal. Lenore says before the survey, it didn't feel like reports of racism were taken seriously. They say, did you write it up? Did you investigate? Did they do this or did they do that? Did we, how do we know that's true? So what you do is you ignore the felt experience that people have. In fact, she says the survey probably would have been ignored too if it weren't for the white allies who were working alongside the natives to make it a big deal. Would that have been attended to as well if it had been an all-Native group of people sponsoring that research? The fear is that it would not be. This was in 2010, so 34 years after the tribes boycotted Bemidji over racism. This new alliance of natives and non-natives brings this issue to the fore again. The majority of American Indians felt unwelcome in Bemidji. That feeling was partly because of the overt prejudice and racial hostility shared earlier, but it was also because American Indians felt invisible. People I talked to said when you looked around town, there was no indication that Native Americans lived here, when in fact, many, many Natives lived here. And there was no community awareness of the art, culture, history of the strong sovereign nations just beyond the town's borders. You know, either we're not here, or we're criminals, or we're drunks, or, you know, or we're romanticized. Simone Senegals is from the Red Lake Nation, and she grew up in Bemidji. Her son was in elementary school around the time of the survey. She says even young people like her boy experienced this. He was, I think, a third grader, and one of our family members was going into um, his school to sing on hand drum for the kindergarten class. And so the kindergarten teacher asked my son, will you come and introduce your person, you know, or to let the kindergarten class know what's coming. And so my son was in there talking about, okay, well, he's going to come and sing a song, and, you know, he sings on a hand drum. And there was this little kindergarten girl, and she was saying, we're really going to see Indian? We're going to see a real Indian? We're going to see a real Indian? And she was really excited. And my son stopped, and he looked at her, and he said, you're looking at one right now. <laughs> you're talking to a real Indian right now. Mayor Albright says this is part of what that group, Shared Vision, wanted to change. In 2010, they started to look for ways to engage more Native Americans in the community. For example, on board service, nonprofit service, commissions, all of that. We recognized, you know, we don't have a lot of diversity around the table. And they also wanted to find ways to teach non-Natives about Ojibwe culture. Which means, Gathering Cloud is my name and I am from Bemidji. And that's a very common way for people to introduce themselves along with their clan. Uh, Michael Mears is a white Irish man who has been working with the Red Lake Nation for just over 20 years. And he was part of the Shared Vision Group with Mayor Albright. The Ojibwe Language Project was partly his idea. 
It's a movement by the group shared vision to put Ojibwe signage in public places around Bemidji. He's popping Nicorette gum as we drive the streets of downtown Bemidji, looking at the low-slung storefronts. We're on 3rd Street, and I see Royce Comics, the Senior Center, and the Cabin Cafe. This cabin is the first place that posted Ojibwe signage. So as you can see it, Anin Boujou, on the door there. Yeah. It's a tidy little storefront with a faux wood facade meant to make it look, well, like a log cabin. Michael says he told a few people about the idea of having Ojibwe signs around Bemidji, and they didn't think it would fly. We were sitting in, somebody telling me that it would never work. We were sitting in the cabin, and I said, I'll tell you what, I'll go and ask the owner right now. (laughs) So I went up and I asked the owner if if, uh, it was her daughter, it wasn't her, that I'd like them to post Ojibwe signage, you know, Ikoiwak, and you need to walk on the restroom doors. And I don't know, a month later, I came back and they had that on the front door, that Buju Anin. And all of a sudden, I've got to to fulfill now. He said he would buy the signs for the first 10 people who posted it. And I figured, well, I'll get get 20 or so, I don't know. And uh, while I was walking down the street, I had 20 before you could shake a stick, you know. And um, it was easy. The idea spread like wildfire. Muir said all the schools and over 150 businesses now have Ojibwe signage. Uh, the Bemidji Co-op has got a lot of their foods marked in Ojibwe. Um, uh, Naylor Electric has, so they don't exist anymore, but for a time they had television, washers and dryers, everything was marked in Ojibwe. What's the impact, do you think, of the Ojibwe signs? It tells the... Um, the, American, the Indians around here, the Ojibwe people, it tells them that we, we want your business, we respect you. Uh, we respect you and, and your culture. And it teaches the non-Indian a little bit about the culture that was here before 1895. There's one other reaction to Ojibwe signs that you might not expect. Michael Mears says the tourists eat it up. They love it. At the cabin coffee house she had these table tents you know you normally have desserts or whatever she put she put out of country tent in Ojibwe um, uh, animals of the north woods in Ojibwe um, Red Lake seven clans in Ojibwe she ran and, with it yeah yeah and she even put stuff on, on the menu in Ojibwe and people were stealing these things out of the table tents during the summer they, they, they'd steal them <laughs> So what she decided was she would make a bunch of put them out of the cash register and give them away. I have to say, when Michael told me this, some alarms went off in my head. I picture non-native tourists coming to town seeking out bits of Indian culture like they're birdwatching, looking for something rare and exotic. Is this even in part a gimmick to attract tourists? So I tell Michael. That is so interesting. Like on one hand, it's like I would I would steal that off the table. I would love yeah, to like let's yeah. talk about one yeah. in Ojibwe. Yeah. At the same time, it's like when you say like oh the tourists eat it up. It's like oh we've crossed back over into well, exploitation. The in different, a way. No, the difference. The difference. Yeah. The oh. difference. The difference is it has to be authentic. And when I was a kid, and my folks used to go go uh, up north to, to a resort. We'd go through Malax, and they'd had this this powwow ring where 
Indians are dancing and they've got on the Dakota headdresses and and they're pretending they're they're acting it out. So so it was it was for the tourists, but but this is authentic. And um, and that's the difference. Is it's 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 got to be authentic. In 2015, natives and their allies in the Bemidji region created a new way to invite non-natives to experience authentic native culture. That spring, on April 4, 2015, the city of Bemidji hosted the historic Bay Majigamog Intertribal Powwow. Say it with me, Bay Majigamog. It's actually Ojibwe for Bemidji. It was a brand new event, the first powwow at the five-year-old Sanford Center. It was the first time fry bread tacos were ever served at the arena's concession stands. It was the first time the city of Bemidji, tribal radio station KOJB, and regional public radio station KBXE ever partnered together on an event to celebrate American Indian culture. It's the first time 79-year-old George Earth has ever been in the Sanford Center. He's from the Leech Lake Reservation. I've never been here before, but I always thought that it needed some kind of uh, interaction with the community. By community, he means the large Native American community that lives here. And today, George may be getting what he wanted. 23 drum groups and nearly 500 dancers are signed up to take part in this historic powwow. The place begins to fill up with dancers on the floor and spectators in the stands. There are babies, toddlers, adults, elders. People are excited. This is a celebration. Dolly Bostring from Bostring, Minnesota is psyched about the big crowd. It's awesome. <laughs> I'm glad there's a lot of people here, you know, a lot of different you know, nationalities, different cultures. A few minutes after one in front of 3,000 people, the powwow MC Daryl Kingbird gives the word to the host drum. All right. Young Kingbird, grand entry time, boys. Nagamoto. <laughs> and all the dancers and dignitaries dance together in a procession into the arena. For a number of people in the crowd, this is their first powwow, because this event is intended to introduce non-natives to this traditional celebration. If you are interested in anything that we have, and you guys want to learn about it, we are here to share with each and every one of you. Learn about the people that are amongst you here in Bemidji, Bemidjigamog. Bemidji resident Kathleen McKinstra says this is an eye-opener for her and her four-year-old daughter, Carol. We said it's like a live rainbow. Um, the colors, the, the sounds, the chanting. Boom, boom, boom. And I realize when I come to an event like this what, how, how ignorant I am and how much I have yet to learn. And, but I, you know, living in Bemidji, I certainly have the resources um, in my community to start that learning. So, um, and it's time to get going on that. So, 
It's the first Bemidji powwow to host tribal leaders, along with Minnesota Governor Mark Dayton, state representatives, and city council members. Brad Walhoff and Gary Charwood from Tribal Radio KOJB broadcast live from the event all afternoon. I think this has been long overdue. I, I think it's, it's Bemidji saying, hey, we live together, we're a community, now we need to embrace each other. What do you take from that? Oh, absolutely, Brad. I believe that just that's a, that's a historical moment here uh, in Bemidji. So today I'm going to be presenting... Bemidji Mayor Rita Albright gives a traditional tobacco offering and new Pendleton blankets to the three tribal leaders. In exchange, they offer their nation's flags to be hung in the entry hall of the arena. Gary Jones is head of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe. I want to present the Leech Lake flag to the city of Bemidji to show a symbol of partnership and to continuing efforts building our relationship. Every native and non-native I talked to said this was a big moment. I took my 81-year-old aunt who's lived in this area for over 40 years. Kathy Annette is a citizen of the White Earth Nation, and she grew up on the Red Lake Reservation. She's lived in Bemidji most of her life. And as we walked in, she was looking all around, and she watched the dancers and the natives and non-natives sitting together in the audience and listening to our tribal leaders, the local leaders, the state leaders. And as we were walking out later, she looked at me and said, isn't this something? Isn't this something? You look back 30 years, would you have tribal flags hanging in Bemidji? The answer is no for a number of reasons. Today, you have tribal flags hanging in Bemidji. It means that our tribal nations are recognized. It means that people in Bemidji have said, these are valued. It's a different time. Over the past 50 years, efforts like the Bay Majigamog Powwow, the Ojibwe Signage Project, and the survey by Shared Vision made American Indians more visible in Bemidji, less demonized, less romanticized. From the historic boycott of Bemidji businesses... All tribal and cap purchases in the Bemidji area are being halted temporarily. ...to the historic Bay Majigimog celebration. We come together today to share in the positive spirit of the powwow, the good life. There are many people in this community who have been looking at something that ordinarily very few people want to deal with. They've been looking at their own negative prejudices, in this case, of American Indians... All of that still doesn't fix kind of endemic issues around poverty and, you know, policing and so forth. Anton Troyer with Bemidji State University is involved in a new group gathering, a truth and reconciliation effort emerging here, focused on changing systems that he says continue to miss the mark when serving Native people. We'll hear stories from that effort in the next half hour. Yo, 
Listening to a special report from Minnesota Native News brought to you by Native Voice One. Bemidji, Minnesota is a border town. The predominantly white town sits at the center of three of the largest and most populous Indian reservations in Minnesota. Over the last 50 years, Natives and non-Natives have been finding ways to make American Indians here less romanticized and less demonized. And yet, deep racial disparities persist in hospitals, in schools, and in jails. In this half hour, we'll hear about the new movement that's building now. Here's reporter Melissa Townsend. Let me introduce you to John Gonzalez. He is Ojibwe from the White Earth Nation, and he's a psychology professor at Bemidji State University. He basically studies discrimination and its impacts on Native people. Certainly, you know, there's there's lots of stories of the overt, I don't know, the old-fashioned racism where, you know, people have open aggression and hostility towards, you know, Native people. Like what Anton Troyer experienced 35 years ago in his middle school in Bemidji. Where there are four kids sitting around a quad table in the shop class and I was the only native at our table and uh, the kids started in Indians are all drunks yeah they're just leeches on the government yeah they're running us dry and I'd say no that's not true my mom said and they'd cut me off your mom just said that because she's a dumb squat and they just keep going Nowadays, for the most part, that type of racism is unacceptable in society, right? You know, there's still a few of those folks out there, right? But for most people, are good, decent people. Like Kathleen McKinstra at the 2015 Bay Majigamog Powwow. The colors, the chanting, the drums. And I realize when I come to an event like this how how ignorant I am and how much I have yet to learn. Um, And it's time to get going on that. So Most people are good, decent people. You hear the butt coming, right? But here's the paradox, right? We were raised, you know, to believe in equality, to treat people how you want to be treated, right? So if that's true, then how come we have such inequality in society? How do those two things go together? Professor John Gonzalez says good and decent people act in oppressive and racist ways without necessarily knowing it. We have this unfortunate, terrible history around race in our country. Every single one of us have inherited that Right. And, and we're taught every single day, unconsciously, even the stereotypes for every single group. And all the research shows that if a stereotype exists about a group, unconsciously, we act upon those stereotypes outside of our own awareness. So those painful stereotypes are at work everywhere, all the time. In this half hour, we hear about three different efforts to take on the stereotypes, to offer a different narrative, and to begin a process of change. Talking with people for this story, I often asked American Indians about any personal experiences that they have had with racism. I heard about things that happened in schools, in stores, on streets. And then I asked Rene Gurneau, Did you have experiences of racism in Bemidji as a young person? (laughs) What? (laughs) 
some people think that racism is a personally bad attitude. It's not. What it is is uh, pervasive, and it's institutionalized, and it's part of every aspect of American life. And Native people are on the receiving end of that inequity more than any other group. So it is systemic and pervasive in all of Bemidji life. And Renee refuses to play her apportioned role in this system. I'm always, always, always clear that wherever I am, I'm standing in the position of being the indigenous person of this land and that other people are guests in my house. I am not a guest in theirs. Renee is a community educator, and I sat down with her just after she wrapped a four-day training. It's called the Anishinaabe Worldview, and this class was all white and included two police officers, a few counselors, and a legal aid attorney. She talked with them about traditional Anishinaabe ways, some of the community customs, and a bit about the spirituality that connects them to their ancestors and the land. She says she offers people the history lesson they never learned in school. You know, the, uh, the colonization of this land, you know, is coached in these real glorious uh, open land for settlement kind of terms. And um, that's certainly not how we experienced it. You know, we experienced it as an invasion and a genocide and a holocaust that was beyond belief. And this leads to what seems like the crux of the whole four-day training. Before white colonization, Renee says there were no crises in Native communities. That is, there were no problems with addiction, violence, abandonment, disease. Poverty and suicide and, you know, dropout and all of that kind of talk is presented as though those problems originate from within the community when, in fact, they are responses to oppression. Renee and many others believe the high rates of addiction, violence, and disease in Native communities are the byproducts of the trauma Native people experienced trying to survive a genocide that lasted generations. If you were to go into the county jail, Beltrami County Jail, who would you see there as Native people? You go into the detention at a high school, and who you see is our young people there. And without a complete truthful understanding of American history, you might think Native people are just troubled or somehow predisposed to dysfunction. Boom. Stereotype confirmed. There needs to be a deeper understanding of the historical trauma. What does that mean exactly? And we're finding out more and more what that means all the time. Um, But right now in the U.S., it's just the very, very, very beginnings of that conversation. Through her trainings, Renee Grineau is doing her part to get more people talking about historical trauma. After Renee took off, I stuck around and met with some of the people who had been in her training. Now, it's possible some folks didn't like this training and they left without talking to me. But the people who stayed said it was pretty profound. My name's Scott Johnson. I'm the police chief in Grand Rapids. Scott Johnson said the training was an eye-opener. In the United States, we form policy that we think is best for people. Sometimes it's, let's hope most of the time, it's meant to further these people, to benefit these people. But I think what we realize now is when it comes to the Native American population, it's done a lot of harm. And this generation may not be responsible for making those policies, but we are responsible for doing the best we can to write those policies. 
Others had very specific ideas about what they want to do differently now. Lynn Cochran, Northern Counseling Center Residential Services. Lynn Cochran is white. She works as a mental health counselor and crisis support contact in Itasca County. That's just next to Bemidji's Beltrami County. During the training, Lynn says she kept remembering an encounter she had with a native teen a few years back. Who came in with her grandma, and she had had some suicidal behavior at school, some suicidal talk. And so they brought her in to the ER in Deer River. Um, The grandmother was trying to help me understand why they didn't want to do the plan that I was offering of let's look at um, getting her some medication possibly, let's look at what kind of therapy we could do in the school. Um, This girl was having visions that I at the time thought were hallucinations. Uh, Grandma felt that they're spiritual beings that were trying to speak to her and give her teachings and whatnot. And I didn't get that at all at the time, but I feel like now I, I do get that and I probably would have the direction to send them in the right direction. Like what? What would you do differently? Well, I, I would suggest more tribal resources, more ceremonial life, more focus on getting and connect with uh, an elder from the tribe, or you know, asking them about who their family connections are and where they're from. That's huge. Yeah, That's a huge shift. <laughs> right. We're so trained to look for the directory. We're so trained to look for the written plan and have, okay, on this day we're going to do this, and then the next thing we're going to do this, and it's very compartmentalized like that, and that's how, not how Native culture works. And so they don't mesh very well. When you had this training, this is really a personal question, and then you look back at that example, do you feel bad? We talked about white guilt in our in our training, and uh, what did she say? You're not, you don't have to have white guilt, you're just busted. So it's kind of like just realizing, oh, well, that's what happened. You know, so it's more of a, just a realization and an understanding for me rather than necessarily feeling badly about it because I don't think I, I don't think that I could have done anything differently at that time. I just didn't have the tools. Social worker Lynn Cochran learned something new about the Anishinaabe experience, and it changed her perspective in a fundamental way. A new awareness has brought new respect for Natives and their diverse perspectives. But sometimes things don't go this smoothly. Sometimes there's, well, resistance to hearing the Anishinaabe side of the colonization story. Falls a great big guy, sticks his head up through the sky. Bemidji's most famous landmark is a giant statue of the mythological lumberjack Paul Bunyan and his companion, Babe the Blue Ox. Paul stands 18 feet high and weighs two and a half tons. When you go to visit Paul and Babe, you can pick up a paper pamphlet that has stories about their quote-unquote life and times in the area. Here's what I mean. Paul Bunyan, legendary Superman and woodsman, hero of the early logging days. Northern Minnesota was the center of his mighty exploits, and this area was Paul's playground. No feat of strength or courage was beyond Paul's power. No obstacle stumped him. If Paul Bunyan celebrates the legacy of the timber boom and man's mastery of the natural world, then a new statue carries a very different message. In June 2015, a bronze statue of Chief Bemidji was erected. He is, obviously, the namesake of the town. He was a respected Ojibwe leader who actually lived here during the timber boom in the late 1800s. His Ojibwe name 
is Shana Wishkong. That's the dichotomy of America, isn't it? From a fairy tale to reality. Jody Bolio is an Ojibwe woman from Red Lake. She served on the Chief Bemidji Statute Committee, which drove the effort to have it erected. To her and the whole committee, this piece of art was an opportunity to give an honest telling of the Anishinaabe experience in this region. The proposal for the statue included four bronze plaques, and they would all have information about what was happening while Shana Wishkong was alive and the role that he played in it all. One plaque begins with a quote from the Northwest Ordinance. The utmost good faith shall always be observed toward the Indians. Their lands and property shall never be taken from them without their consent. Jody says that sets the stage for the next part. And the land um, dwindled down from 138 million acres in 1887 to 48 million acres in 1934. That's plaque two. Plaque three is tragedy and survival. And it's about how the people were forced to go over hundreds of miles away to get their annuities that they had coming for the land that they gave up. And quite a few of them died along the way. And so we have that in here. It hits people hard. It does. No doubt about it. You know, but we have bared the brunt of this hidden history for how many years now? Jody believes telling the truth helps everyone. And she wants to say so on the final plaque. This monument honors Shana Wishkung and the Anishinaabe people and encourages the healing of all people. Truth-telling is a basis for the acknowledgement of injustice and suffering and the restoration of human dignity. The honor of one is the honor of all. There's much more, but in order to include any of this on the four bronze plaques, Jody and the whole statue committee needed to get the approval of the seven-member all-white Bemidji City Council. Jody knew it wouldn't be an easy task, which seemed to make her only more determined. You have this fictitious Paul Bunyan and the Blue Ox, and how long has that been going on? And yet we're trying to deal with someone who the city is named after, and you have problems with what we're trying to put on the plaques? Is it, isn't it time to get real? Isn't it time to come out of the fairy tale? We're going to go on to our next item on our agenda, which is um, consider the plaque language uh, for the Chief Bemidji statue. And on April 20th, the Bemidji City Council met to vote on the information surrounding the new bronze statue of Chief Bemidji, Shana Wishkong. Um, I view it as a quite a deviation from the intent that we originally had when we funded the project. Council member Roger Helquist said he thought it would be more of a celebration of the Indian heritage in the area. I, uh, I didn't really look at it to be a, a history lesson. I mean, I'm well aware of what atrocities were done and uh, have read a number of different books on it. It's just that I didn't think this was the place for it. They were all fine with the basic information about its birth, death, life as a peacemaker, negotiating with reps from the railroad and the timber industries. But some didn't like the information about broken treaties, stolen land, the War of 1862. Council member Nancy Erickson especially didn't like including the famous quote from Andrew Merrick about American Indians that says, so far as I'm concerned, if they're hungry, let them eat grass or their own dung. That statement is an insult. It's an insult to the white population, and certainly it, has no, it holds no value whatsoever, that statement. That is the core 
of where I am coming from. When I am talking about these plaques, all of this... Merrick was a white businessman in Minnesota involved in the conflict over supplies that led to the War of 1862. He was killed in that war. This is what happened 150 years ago and should be buried, should be buried along with the man. Those words hold no value. They do no uplifting, nothing. The statue committee's research shows Shana Wishkong persuaded Ojibwe people not to join the Dakota in the war. Mitch Blessing, who is not Native, is on the Shana Wishkog Statue Committee. He stood at a podium looking up at the seven-member council seated at their raised bench, and he made his case for including all of the proposed information. Um, my daughter is seven years old now, and uh, she's reading books now by herself, and she'd be one of those kids that's going to read that plaque. And I wanted you to know that um, from a very heartfelt place, I am concerned about fear and about bad things that have happened and saying things that um, are painful. And I also believe that the things that I've learned with my daughter and that she's learned from me have been from the hard questions. Daddy, why has that happened? Why did somebody say that, man, that bad thing? Why did somebody kill that person? And I've had to learn how to communicate to her you know, those facts. Mayor Rita Albright said all the information on the plaque should be approved. We have tried for many years to sanitize history and to ignore history and to not really be truth-tellers. And here's our opportunity to be brave, as Councilman Olson said, and be courageous, and to acknowledge the fact that we have a history that we're not proud of. Councilmember Mealhouse was also in favor of the plaques. I think this, all four of these plaques really speak to, um, despite all the challenges he faced in his life, they speak to the person he became. Thank you. Toward the end of the debate, Jody Bolio says she felt like it was too close to call, so she got up to make one more final passionate plea. Be brave, she said. Please, be brave. We've been brave alone for far too long. Miigwech. Thank you. So, we have before us a motion to approve the recommendation from the Platt Committee or the uh, Chief Bemidji Committee. Roll call, please. Johnson? No. Olson? Yes. Erickson? No. Albright? Yes. Larson? Yes. Millhouse? Yes. Helquist? No. Motion carries. Thank you. Thank you for your hard work. And with that, it passed. The four plaques that accompany the new Chief Bemidji bronze statue tell the story of Shana Wishkong, how he built relationships and negotiated with white businessmen and his own Anishinaabe people as their annuities were cut, their land was taken, and they were moved to reservations. Well, when I walked out of there, I was just like in a celebratory mood, and and I started singing because I felt so elated. So I started singing, It's Been a Long Time Coming. It's a long, 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 long time before the dawn. Councilmember Nancy Erickson declined an interview request to talk about the plaques and the council's vote. In an email she wrote, as soon as the council votes on any issue before it, the matter is settled and we accept the majority rule. After a hard-won victory comes a sobering reminder. People can get behind a feel-good moment. It's easier to 
go clap at a statue commemoration, and I'll be there clapping too. Um, and I do feel that that has meaning. But what's harder is then sustaining that into a deeper and more meaningful change. Anton Troyer, professor of Ojibwe at Bemidji State University, is part of a group calling themselves a truth and reconciliation effort. He says about 150 people have been involved since the beginning of 2014, and it includes natives and non-natives. He says their attention is on systemic forms of racism and discrimination. The things that are not overt racism. The overt things, those are easy to see. But how a whole web of smaller privileges and practices really serve to marginalize Native people, it's harder to see. The kind that's embedded in our justice system, for example. At first glance, it could look like Natives are committing the majority of crimes in this region. Here's Jody Bolio's observation. Yeah, you can't deny that there's high arrest rates here in Bemidji. If you, you know, sit down there on a bench and I invite you to do this and see who's going to court. The first time I ever moved back home and I went down there for some odd reason, probably one of my relatives was in jail, I don't know. But I seen everybody sitting on these benches and I said, where's the powwow? Because it was almost all Indian. Troyer cites a 2014 study that shows the numbers of natives in court can be attributed to racial profiling and discrimination. The data really supports that, that Native people are disproportionately pulled over in similar situations to their non-Native peers. Native people are it disproportionately charged number when they are pulled over, in prison. disproportionately tried and disproportionately convicted and disproportionately denied parole. We have Native people who are less than 2% of the state's population and more than 17% of the state's prison population. I talked with Troyer about this at a small group gathering of people involved in the truth and reconciliation effort here. (laughs) There are seven of us, four white people on one side of the table and three Native people on the other. We're meeting in a nondescript room at the American Indian Resource Center at Bemidji State. You probably know the kind. Linoleum floors, fluorescent lights, a few fold-out tables and chairs. I'm late to this meeting, and the group has been passing the time reading each other's horoscopes in the newspaper. Uh, my name is Mark Morrissey. I work here at Bemidji State. With- Everyone seems to know each other, but we do a round of introductions anyway. I'm Simone Senegals. My mother is from Red Lake, and my father is actually from Argentina. Simone Senegals is sitting next to me, and she's really fired up about what's happening in schools, mainly because of the stories her son tells her when he comes home from his high school in Bemidji. So was, was he was in history class, and they were reading excerpts from speeches made by lawmakers and movers and shakers throughout U.S. history. And, and we were talking about the need for there to be that indigenous voice in there as well. And for him to have been able to re- read firsthand what our people were saying, you know, during all of these different changes that were happening, and to really include that voice very intentionally into his experience. She says she's talking with the teachers and school administrators about her concerns. And they were like, yes, we want to figure out ways to do that. So how do we come together to really bring that in and go beyond diversity and celebrating each other to actually like challenging the power structure that makes these these things happen. 
How? How is a question these folks are asking a lot. How do we get people to look at hard truths? How do we move forward? How fast do we go? How hard do you push? Simone has serious concerns about this when it comes to her son's school. How hard can she rock the boat? So in one way is you really want to rock the boat so that you can kind of create a world, you know, that's really pushing up against the things that are hurting them, you know, and you want the teachers to like them (laughs) because teachers have a lot of power in the classroom. You want the teachers to like you so that they are willing to listen to you. You know, there's always that, you know, how do you rock the boat but not too much? (laughs) Anton Troyer says white people struggle with this process. Nobody wants to get beat up for the sins of their ancestors. Every Native person I talked to for this story said they've heard white people say, why bring up ancient history? I didn't do those things. Let's just leave them in the past. And yet the white people at this table, they all say knowing the real history is a key to moving forward. Noreen Hautula is a white woman, and she's part of this group. I grew up in northern Minnesota, surrounded by one of the highest concentrations of Native American reservations of any state in the United States, and I didn't know many Native people, and I didn't learn this stuff. Noreen says through her activism in the 1980s, she finally began to learn the history of Minnesota's indigenous people. Treaties and the brutality and the systematic destruction of the family system for five generations and how that impacts the community as far as loss of parenting, loss of language, loss of culture. She says she began to understand why sometimes she felt American Indians were ambivalent towards her or even angry at her. It gave me a language to talk with people Native American people and listen to them about justifiable outrage and anger and frustration with what has happened. She says her responsibility is to acknowledge what happened and to look at ways it's still happening. So that white people could just say, we're sorry and it's all good. We really need to pay attention to all the different ways that this has permeated our culture and a systemic unfairness that plays out in really subtle and really um, huge ways. I really like that were, you know, like truth and reconciliation, you know, tell truths. And I really liked what Noreen said about, you know, really being able to sit in that fire and sort of sit there and, and take that responsibility where you're not putting it on someone else to take care of you. Um, Perhaps Simone is encouraging white folks to brace themselves because she believes at some point the conversation is going to get even harder. When we're talking about race relations between indigenous peoples and non-indigenous peoples, we, we can't just say that it's about like prejudice, but it's about land and who has the land, who has the water. Um, and there's a real power structure that is at the base of the inequity. And so that, that has to be addressed, and it gets really uncomfortable, and it challenges people. It challenges the very foundation of the country that we are in. Nearly every person you've heard in the last hour believes that a healing process will begin when we open thoughtful, candid conversations about crimes committed against Native people during white colonization. And the insights from those conversations can change the way Native communities are viewed and the ways our systems treat Native people. That may make some intuitive sense to you, but there's actually some science behind all this. Here's John Gonzalez again. He's a citizen of the White Earth Nation and a psychology professor from Bemidji State University. A few years back, John did a study with Native students at BSU 
to look at how they respond to perceived prejudice and discrimination. Here's what he found. The Native student who knows who they are and knows where they come from, right, and knows the history of what happened to them, they have a stronger cultural identification, and they rely on that cultural identification for strength. It's a source of resilience for them. So identifying as a Native person and knowing what happened to your people is a way to build strength. And that's what these alliances in Bemidji are trying to do. They want to uproot the historical fiction and negative stereotypes, like they're invasive weeds in a garden. And they want to replace them with the knowledge of what really happened on this land. And then they want to watch something new and different grow. For this special report from Minnesota Native News, I'm Melissa Townsend. Special thanks to Aaron Warhol, Diane Richard, and Marie Rock. This has been a special report from Minnesota Native News, brought to you by Native Voice One. Minnesota Native News is produced by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, made possible by funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and the citizens of Minnesota. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.